Welcome to Back from the Abyss. This is a place for stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Before we start on today's story, I wanted to read a listener question that I got recently. And the question was, how has the podcast changed you as a person and your work? Well, before Back from the Abyss, I felt so alone and siloed in my solo private practice. And I never could have guessed how connected I would become, how many amazing, wonderful people I would meet, all the storytellers, the experts, the BFTA fans who reached out to me, the nurse practitioners and psychiatrists and PAs who I'm now mentoring. All of this has been such an unexpected gift. I just don't feel like that solo goalkeeper anymore, trying to do all of this on my own with no backup or support. The podcast, it's fostered so many beautiful connections, and I'm forever grateful. Why do so many of us tend towards self-destructive behaviors? Not just once, or twice, or even three times, but over and over and over. Basically, no one as a little child thinks... Hmm, I want to grow up and repeatedly choose neglectful or abusive partners. Or, hmm, I want to grow up and fall deeply into using and abusing various drugs and alcohol and never learn from the consequences. Or, hmm, I think one day I'll try to pick out the people most likely to abandon me, then just keep doing that. From where we therapists sit, it's like telling our clients and patients, hey, just so you know, behind door number one, lies unending suffering and despair, but behind door number two lies recovery and redemption, and then we watch them pick door number one over and over and over. The driving force of so many of our self-destructive tendencies is not conscious. It's an unconscious drive called the repetition compulsion, where we try to reenact early childhood traumas or deficits, often consciously hoping for a different result, but unconsciously walking directly and knowingly into the flames. One of the central tasks of therapy is often helping people identify the repetition compulsions and doing the deeply uncomfortable work of making different choices. For the repetition compulsion, it feels so right. It feels so right at the deepest levels of being. And that's because it was wired into us during early childhood. Self-destructive decisions, they just smell like home cooking. They're like the blue light that draws in the unsuspecting moths over and over and over, even when they see what's about to happen. In today's story, we hear how Katie's early emotional neglect and toxic parental modeling led her down a path of almost two decades of self-destruction, with an ongoing battle between her healthier and more resilient parts and her wounded, repetition-seeking, masochistic parts. For who would choose superficially, quote-unquote, sweet boys with good drugs and asking very little of her? Katie. Katie would. And why did she do this? Well, this is the story of why she did this for so long and how she eventually broke free. A final note. At one point, I talk about me feeling parental transference towards Katie. I meant to say parental counter-transference. I was feeling her unconsciously putting me in the parental role and then responding accordingly. So my family is and was um, probably 
you know, if I had to describe it in a couple of words, it would be chaotic, highly dysfunctional, high stress, not a lot of outward love going on really at all. I just remember there being constant events happening with my siblings or um, extended family that was, you know, more than unfortunate, lots of drug addiction, lots of violence, gun violence, just lots of different sort of, you know, tragedy. It seemed like consistently there wasn't a lot of breaks in the events that occurred. And you were the baby. Yes, I was the baby of four. I'm technically the only an only child. My from my mom and my dad, I was the only one that they had. And then my three older siblings came from my mom's first marriage and were all about four to six years apart, which is a pretty wide gap for four kids. So it kind of felt like they were, you know, sometimes like my aunts and uncles more than they were my siblings, especially when they started having children really young. Hmm. which kind of set the stage for me being parentified and kind of just holding on to this position of taking care of everyone else. So that's kind of when that mm-hmm. started. As a little kid, like who were you? Who were you, you know, as a little girl, who were you in relationship to your mom and to your dad? So as a little girl, I just remember being pretty independent Not that you're supposed to be independent as a child, but I definitely played by myself a lot. You know, I had a really strong relationship to my mom, but she often was so busy dealing with being a mom with my other siblings that, you know, sometimes I didn't get the direct attention that I needed. I was pretty self-sufficient and learned that I did a lot of make-believe play as a kid. Once again, since my siblings were so much older than me, you know, playing with me wasn't like the most attractive thing for them. My dad and my mom were divorced when I was two. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of mom and dad in the same room ever. My mom constantly busy and my dad lived a sort of hillbilly alternative lifestyle, um, if you will. So... I wasn't really super connected to him in like a loving sort of strong bond that you might want to have with your dad. Did you feel loved by him? Uh, I don't really know. Like, yes, I think when I was younger, I felt like I felt love from him, but I think I just like knew it should be there. So I kind of just like created it myself. I went and saw him on the weekend sometimes. And he had a hard time like getting his shit together for me. He rarely wore a shirt. Um, He was kind of like your backyard sort of like shirt off dad. He, He worked on cars and did like auto body painting, had a really bad stutter. He was kind of an asshole, but would also like give someone the shirt off his back. Mm. But you know, and he was an addict. Yes. So he was Definitely an addict. He was drinking. I remember him drinking, you know, since I was really little, like he would have a, he would have crown and Coke at 9am. And I have a memory of um, being so enthralled by like what was happening behind the bar that I just started like mixing things and cocktail mixology, whatever, when I was like, very, very little. And I remember little seven, eight, nine. Wow. 
Um, I remember like maybe being like 10 and making my own like strawberry daiquiri. And like, of course, like I couldn't have the alcohol, but I just knew like, wow, this is like the coolest shit that adults can be doing is like mixing a drink behind the bar and playing music with their friends and, you know, staying up all night or whatever it was. So he would take me to Toys R Us and to Country Buffet, like whenever we would hang out, which was like, you know, as a kid, I'm like, cool, this is great. But like, it wasn't really like the nurturing, you know, things that you actually need. I was just like, okay, so when I go to my dad's house, like this is what we do. And so I would probably go to my dad's like every other weekend or something like that up until I was about 11 or 12. And then I kind of just started noticing some themes when I would be there. The lack of sort of attention on me other than when we would go to those outings, which seemed like the last thing he really wanted to do because he wasn't like a put on his nice shirt and go in public type of guy. (laughs) He, like, went to the American Legion, and, like, that was his outing. You know, he worked at home and partied at home and had friends over a lot. And so I started noticing, like, just, like, sketchy shit. People just in and out of the house, like, multiple women being like, hi, Katie, you know, what are you up to? Or trying to, like, make nice with me. And I was like, who the hell are all these people? Like, I just want to hang out with my dad. One of the times, like, my dad left me alone with, like, one of his girlfriends. And I went home and told my mom some of the details about um, how I'd been feeling that weekend or whatever. And she said, you know what? You know, you're not going over there so your dad can just, like, have you babysat. So I'm going to, you know, maybe talk to him and maybe you shouldn't go over there for a while. Kind of trusted that my mom knew, you know, what she was talking about. And I just said, okay, you know, because I wasn't really like, no, I want to see my dad because it didn't feel good. I knew something was off. So she was trying to protect you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. She was very protective, but almost like to a fault. Yeah. Was she loving? So she was loving in the best way that she knew how. I truly believe, you know, I don't think that it excuses sort of her like tough love or you know, I like to maybe say cold love, but I do know that um, she did the best that she could, like given the circumstances, she was very much traumatized by my other siblings in their choices and how they, you know, turned out. And so she kind of was like really helicoptery to me because she didn't want me to turn out like my other siblings or to literally die. And so she was just very, very, very close in on what I was up to. You know, she was very, like, my, they were, like, biker people, not, like, bicyclist, um, (laughs) like, Harley Davidson people, if you will. So, you know, like, I remember it just being, like, cold love, you know? Like, she didn't, she wasn't, like, you're so amazing, you sweet kid, (laughs) you know? It was just, like, Lots of yelling, lots of like, you know what you're supposed to do, you know, you know what the right thing is, like, you know, don't mess up, you know better type thing. Your mom had substance problems too. Yeah. And so I didn't really recognize it as substance problems when I was younger because she was so high functioning and like her personality didn't really change very much when she was drinking where like my stepdad would like turn into like an asshole and we would all have to walk on eggshells and he was always irritable and blah, blah, blah. He got mean. And my mom really wasn't like that. And so I didn't like see it as like active addiction per se. 
and you know, in her mind and her eyes, she's like, you know, I've worked really hard and I've done this and this and this. So if I want to drink on the weekends and make sure my kids are in a safe place and that's my business. And a lot of it was like, that's none of your business. You're mm-hmm. a child. You don't get to know all of these things. Like, you know, when you're an adult, you get to find out type of thing. Kind of just really like, like, just like I said, harsh. And, um, and also adding this mystique to adulthood, because when you're, you're an adult, you'll find out these secrets. You'll have this power. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to make the drinks you want. Yes. Party, have the parties you party want. all night long and, and do all the, the fun secret things that adults yes. are, are up to. Absolutely. So, you know, I didn't really, you know, understand her, her lifestyle as like problematic. I saw it. I idolized it. A lot of it. I mean, at this point, did you have a sense, Katie, that your family was maybe not healthy, not, I mean, I hate the word normal, but yeah. that you guys were maybe outside the bell curve of the American family? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I personally always felt different in a general sense than everyone else in my family. I was always more thoughtful. I was always thinking about others. I was constantly just like asking like, why is it like this? Or I don't really think it has to be this way. Or just knowing that one day I could get out of there or I could, you know, whatever I was going to do, it was get out of Wellington and it was get out of the chaos that I was constantly surrounded by. And I really started, well, I would notice like how at school, how I would act at school and how I loved being at school. And I just loved being helpful. You know, I would be like, whoever was getting bullied, I wanted to be their best friend. And, um, you know, I wanted to make people feel comfortable. And so and I just thought that was like the opposite of anything I was getting at home. So I'm still to this day kind of like, I don't really know how I ended up like that. Because it's not like I was being taught or shown that in my home. So yeah, and you know, I really idolized like, movies, when I was younger, I watched a lot of movies and I would dissociate that way. So I would really, really watch things and imagine myself in them and have a lot of coping through that and imagining that. Matilda was like my absolute favorite movie growing up because I identified with her so much because her family was so dysfunctional and she was so special and they constantly wrote her off for not being that and gave attention to the places that were more fucked up and not as wonderful. Mm-hmm. I remember you telling me that you so desperately wanted to be adopted. Yes. So I was always trying to get adopted. <laughs> you know, I would extend my stay at people's houses that that let me, you know, I would say, will you please call my mom and, and let her and tell me and let her let me stay one more night, please. Because I could feel the sort of like, you know, wonderful things that were happening in other people's like nuclear families that I wasn't like, I was like, oh, this seems so nice. Like, why doesn't it happen at my family's? And of course, I'd come home and tell my mom, like, so-and-so does this and this and this. Why don't we do that? Or, Mm. and she would say something like, well, you know, everyone has skeletons in their closet, Katie, and you're just not seeing the whole picture. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, you know. Do you think it's fair to say that that 
no, clearly there's some terrible traumas happened in your life and we'll hear about that here shortly. But my sense is with you is that pervasive neglect was the bigger issue. Right. That yes, again, some things happened to you. There were some really awful things, but but mostly it's what didn't happen. Yeah. It was I'm just picturing you this much younger child with these much older, older sibs who are off doing their own chaotic stuff and dad's deep in his stuff. And mom, I think is probably exhausted mm-hmm. and basically trying to keep you alive and maybe, sure. maybe keep you from getting pregnant, but mm-hmm. just doesn't really have anything else to give. Right. And so here you are, this curious, intellectual, energetic kid that's just, um, yeah, your little Matilda of Wellington. You're yeah. just trying to figure out where can I go and where, where can I connect to and who, mm-hmm. who's out there? Yeah, definitely. Did you find other adults to, I don't know, to love you or mentor you? or Was there anyone else there for you adult-wise? You know, it was mostly my teachers. So I would be really, I was really close to my teachers. And, you know, I really just was like, well, I see how they make me feel at school. And they seem to really see me and, you know, congratulate me on my hard work and all of these things. So I guess teachers are where it's at. So, Mm. um, and then I decided I wanted to be a teacher. So then I became like obsessed with being a teacher because I knew that like they were doing some like badass work. And if they had the, they had the, um, the ability to make me feel so important, so, um, loved and like appreciated that that meant I needed to do that for other kids too. You know, I think the the first like full full grown adult that wasn't a teacher was my therapist after my dad was murdered. I kind of saw her in the school, and I always wondered like who she was, and because she was kind of intimidating, and I thought she was like there for like the super troubled kids, and I didn't realize that she was a grief and you know trauma therapist mm-hmm. until she came into my classroom and asked to speak to me. years after I stopped going to my dad's. Luckily, my mom, her spidey senses were like, there's some serious shit going on there and I'm she's not going to have any part of it. My dad, steady fast, I guess, just started, it was mostly meth and I don't think there were like any other, you know, drugs going on, but, you know, kind of like a case of like drugs, sex and rock and roll, I like to say, just because, you know, it was like a lot of partying and then Lots of like money being tossed around, the garage lifestyle, if you will. I think my dad just started getting too confident and messed around with like the wrong guy. The two guys that were convicted of murder showed up to my dad's house with the intention of robbing him. And my dad sort of like put up a fight. You know, it was one of those situations where they kind of went there with a plan. The plan went sideways. My dad had a lot of defense. And they, you know, brutally murdered him. My dad's, like, best friend at the time came over just to, you know, do the regular Friday night situation. And um, they murdered him as soon as he walked into the house. 
So it was a double homicide. It was all over the news. I happened to be pretty involved in a school musical at the time. So I was a lead in the musical, and the day that it happened, or the day that I found out that it happened, so it was the following day after the murder, I had a all-day rehearsal planned at the Lincoln Center to do my the musical that I had just been working on. I remember hearing the news, and I was immediately, you know, I immediately was crying and whatnot, but I remember just not being, like, sh- that shocked. I just was like... Well, uh, you know, this is like, this is what it is. And, you know, I'm not going to let this ruin my day. As like a 13 year old child, I still was like, I'm not letting this ruin my day. Like I have shit to do. And I'm, I have this really important thing that I've dedicated time to and that I'm really excited about. So you guys can like do whatever you want with this, but I'm, I'm going to my rehearsal. Yeah. Do you think you had to learn to be that way. Um, Because there is something about you, and I so vividly remember meeting you 13 years ago when we first started working together, and having you lay out your trauma history, and we're not even going to get into all the traumas Mm -hmm. in this talk today where we had to really focus down, but um, you've always just had this amazing way to just like kind of this badass superpower of just moving forward. Like this happened, this happened, but I had to, or I had like here, I had to go to the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder, like, I've always thought this is part of Katie's superpower, but I also wonder like what that has cost you. For that, sure. That you were this little kid, like, no, I got to go to the Lincoln Center to do my theater. And like, wait, your dad was part of this huge double murder. And, but you're like, no, I got stuff to do. Yeah. You know, to this day, I'm still like, I have no idea. But something inside of me was like, yeah, this is a par for the course for all of for all this dysfunction. Like, and I am gonna do something different, and I'm choosing that right now. You know, mm-hmm. I chose it as even younger than that. I was like, well, definitely not gonna get pregnant. Oh, I'm never gonna be married to someone that's an alcoholic. I'm never gonna do. I knew for sure what I wouldn't was what I wasn't gonna do. When I got to rehearsal that day, I remember like everyone was talking about it because it was the local like tragedy. And it was all over the news, local news, the newspaper, front page, like the whole thing. And so, you know, there were parents around and things and they were talking about it. And I remember being like, hey, just so you guys know, that was my dad, you know, because I was like, you guys probably don't realize it. And here I am just like educating them on like this fact. And they're like, (gasps) you know, like what? Like, you don't have to be here. Like, you should go home. Like, I'm like, what am I going to do at home? Mm. Like, watch everyone like dissociate and get fucked up or whatever the hell they're going to do or, you know, you know, whatever it was, I wanted no part of it. Mm. I just knew that it was bad. And I knew that like, it was about to continue to be bad Mm. for a while. So that was like one of the first like shape, like shifting big deal that's that like shifted a lot of things for me. Yeah. And you were 12, 13, 13. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
wondering, like, the aftermath, not just of your dad's murder, but just of this these years of neglect, like, how that started to unfold for you in middle school and high school. Again, there's this, you know, deeply resilient part of you. There always has been. And, you know, I saw that when we first met. And the, yet there's also this really damaged mm-hmm. part of you, like this, like you're this little flower that just like never got watered. I mean, you, watered sure. you watered yourself a lot, but For n- sure. nobody watered you. Right. So, yeah, how did that unfold in terms of maybe what went well, or maybe more importantly for this talk, like what didn't go so well in the ensuing years? So I started, you know, as far as like my drug and alcohol journey, I started drinking and smoking weed when I was 15, which is pretty young and not in a way that was like experimenting with friends at parties, like every once in a while, it was more like, you know, I was hanging out with older people. I started having sex at 15. And so then I started having these, like these needs met that were mostly toxic But I started being like, oh, I started getting attention, not from my teachers, but from boys or from older kids that were like smoking weed or drinking. And I was like, once again, started idolizing them. And I was like, okay, here we go again. This is what cool people are doing. You know, the idea of being cool was a pretty intense thing for me. Like my parents were cool. They they rode motorcycles and had big, huge parties. Like they were cool. So that was like the way to get through life. And I wonder too, it wasn't just maybe that they were cool, but if they showed interest in you, because again, you, the interest that I picture you getting as a little kid is like, don't die. Yeah. You know, don't do something stupid. Yeah. You know, for sure. But all of a sudden you have these older people, older boys, you know, who are taking an interest in you and are want to know you and be with you and are seeing you. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that felt just irresistible. For Absolutely. I mean, it was like a drug because I, not only did I have no male attention at all, this, the, the male attention I did have was from my stepdad and like, it was very conditional based off of like his mood. And so it was never like, Hey Katie, I'm a man and I don't want to have sex with you. I just want to be nurturing to you. That never occurred my entire childhood, not with one male period. Mm -hmm. And so, so when I did start getting attention, I was like, okay, well this must be it you know, this must be the stuff. So in high school, I was always kind of, I played two parts very well. One of my personalities was like, I was a badass. Don't fuck with me. I, I don't take any shit. So, you know, stay away from me. And, um, I'm going to go get high at lunch and get in squabbles at the park with girls that look at me wrong And then I had this other very soft side of myself that was like, I want to help everybody love and rainbows and I'm in choir and I have a good GPA and all of these things. And I just only wanted to be good. And I knew that was something I was going to hold on to that I always held on to when I was, since I was really young. And then once I started like delving into like this other sort of lifestyle of like being bad, you know, quote unquote, I was like, this is actually pretty exhilarating. And it turns out I can't really relate to any of the people that are in AP psychology. And I can't really relate to a lot of the the kids that are in my choir, you know, because it's not like none of them had dysfunctional homes, but the level at which mine was dysfunctional, the most people that I related to were the kids that were also from broken homes or, you know, in a trailer park or kids that didn't have a lot because I just was like, oh, okay. Like I, I get you on a different level. So it was really like this substance abuse 
and the toxic relationships like those those came together for sure like there was this other part of you like the choir part of you theater part of you getting good grades was with these people that you couldn't relate to but the the bad kids right well like who were up to no good like that those were your people yeah yeah i was like okay like this scene this feels good and i wanted them to like me i didn't want to think them to think i was too good or or goody good or something so once i was like no i can be bad like, look at me be bad. You know, it was, they were like, oh, okay, cool. Well, you can hang with us. And then it was like a hierarchical like situation. And I just didn't get that sort of like oomph when I was like hanging out with like the healthier kids that like, you know, had functioning supportive parents. Yeah. So. I wonder if there was part of you back then that recognized that you were heading down a bad path, but also, well, not, not just kind of thrilled by it, but also thinking, well, this is, um, these are my people. Mm-hmm. Like as you described, you know, vividly, like these your parents' parties when you were little, and the people come over, just the chaos and the mystery and the all the all weekend partying. And if you just thought, well, this is this is my legacy. Like this is, yeah, I, I, I need to follow this path. Like it feels right, even if cognitively, like mm, maybe this isn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. Like your heart was like, no, this, this right, is, this is where we're going for sure. Yeah, I think I started really getting, I started getting really attracted to like the community that like partying offered. And so that started becoming, it was beyond cool because it started fulfilling the need for community, which everyone we know now, of course, that we need that to survive as a species. And even if it was like the wrong type of community, it was still a community for me. And it was probably amazing at first. Oh yeah. It was great. Because you and I met when you were 20. In my memories, you, this is when you were kind of deeply in that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, you know, I was still like going to school and like doing like great things. But then I was like snorting a bunch of cocaine and blacking out and, um, you know, having high risk sex with multiple partners and, but still was like, well, I'm not getting abused and I'm not pregnant and I'm not an addict per se. I'm not like doing meth, so I guess I'm good. You know, <laughs> I must be good. That's yeah. Isn't that so interesting how we come up with our own? Everyone's got their rationalizations for everything. For yeah. you, like I don't have a bunch of babies. I'm not. Right. Doing, I'm not doing meth. Like I'm not on welfare in a trailer park right now with like my 15th husband like beating me. So like sick. This must be the <laughs> spot. You know. <laughs> yeah. And I remember um, it wasn't that long after you and I met. You had an incident of drinking in college where you could got in a fight and got charged with an ass- with assault. It was very bad. Yeah. And um, I remember that was a wake-up call for me, I think, about your drinking. I don't know how much of a wake-up call for you. That may mm-hmm. have come much later. But you know, pretty early on in our relationship, I, s- I started seeing like you had these you know, two sides. Like you, again, so charismatic and smart and interesting and resilient. and And yet this other side that could just, when it went dark, like everything went off the rails. Yeah. Like, you know, I've kind of made more in more recent years have made a commitment to like nonviolence. So whatever that means, nonviolence towards myself, nonviolence in a, even with my words in a conversation and also just like not hurting people physically. And, you know, I never really had like intimate partner violence issues, but like, it was one of those things, like if a woman like spoke to me wrong or crossed me or whatever. Like, I just like, was like, okay, well, I guess this is what we do. We just, we literally have a physical altercation. 
think I'm just picturing like sort of the the relationship dynamic that got laid down with you and your mom and you and your dad, which is this very distant, like they're theoretically, there was love. Mm-hmm. And with your mom, there was like, okay, I'm make, trying to make sure you don't die. Yeah. And I'll feed you. And Right. Um, but I wonder if that played out with your intimate partners and in that you found yourself consciously or unconsciously choosing people who were very distant yeah. Emo- emotionally neglectful again not sure. not beating you up not yeah exactly not sexually assaulting you that you know no 911 calls but right. people who were again recreating that yeah i have these people in my life but they're just they're not connected at the For heart sure. yeah they're just more like like distant solar system people so that kind of brings me to a story that i'd like to tell i was dating this dude i worked at raisin canes and i you know there was a guy that was working there he was from California. He really liked reggae and he was really attractive. Sooner than later, I start I figured out that he was also an intravenous drug user. But that wasn't enough to keep me away from him because he was super sweet and he was a good dude. And mm. so I just like excused all of those types of things even though like so many people would be like that's insane. How could you excuse that? Yeah, but he had he sounds like he really cared about you. Like he had heart. Totally. He actually was someone who wanted to connect and be there for you. Yes. And he did IV drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And so it's, it definitely got dark really quick with him because I started just like being in situations that I would have never wanted to be in just like junkie parties. I started getting just a little too like used to seeing needles and things. I was like, okay, like this definitely isn't great, but it's good enough for me to keep going back. Um, and once again, like the attention that I was getting from him was just absolutely irreplaceable. And I wasn't interested in, in like looking at how healthy it really was. You know, I kind of had a little bit too much trust in him and would kind of just like, you know, snort whatever he was snorting take whatever he was taking because I'm like, well, if he's taking it, like must be okay. Even though like clearly he may or may not have cared if he lived or died Mm. where I was pretty scared to die. We went to a show at Red Rocks and, you know, he got ecstasy from like one of his friends before I knew like, don't take drugs from someone you don't know, or, you know, test if you can, or all of these sort of like protocols to do to make sure that you can, you're staying safe which none of those happened. I'm still not really sure if this ecstasy that I took was laced with something or exactly what happened, but I went into like a psychedelic psychosis and I got butt naked at Red Rocks and I got, you know, tackled by EMTs and, you know, shoved into an ambulance and woke up strapped to the table um, with bruises and all kinds of like weird marks all over my body, had no recollection of exactly how I got there. And my mom had to come pick me up, which was one of the, you know, the last thing I wanted to not do. Not your boyfriend? No, not my boyfriend. Wow. Where right. Was, where was he? They were like, you know, him and another friend, they like came to the hospital, but they wouldn't release me to them. Mm. And so, um, but still the care wasn't there you know, for either of them. Like I didn't wake up to either of them. I mean, maybe they didn't let them, let them in the room, but either way, that way I was treated in the hospital was like super negative. And like, granted, like I probably was like wailing and like having a lot of defense. And so like, 
it was probably like a very like less than ideal situation for those professionals. You know, when my mom came and got me, she thought I was going to die. She definitely thought this is it. Another one of my children is going to die. You know, what's crazy is my mom. So my mom's been around the block so many times that when she got there, she's like, what the fuck did you take? It wasn't like, oh my God, what? Like she, cause she wasn't like shocked. <laughs> she just was like, what did you take? Like you idiot. Mm. Like what drug could you have possibly taken to make you do this? And that just like is so shattering in a way because she wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're okay. Like, you know, anything, it doesn't matter what happened. Like, you know, like any, whatever it is, like, we'll talk about it later. Like, give me a hug, mm. you know? And she was like, what the fuck did you take? Yeah. Like, you just scared the fuck out of me. You caused me so much disruption to, like, my night. And, um, of course, I knew that, like, that was her way of being, like, you need to figure your shit the fuck out because, like, I'm not going to do this. And, like, it's not about me, but it is about me. And so, um, yeah. And it took me a while to recover from that mentally. Mm -hmm. But it still wasn't enough to, like, stop me from partying or to from using substances yeah i mean was that a bottom or was that one of a number of bottoms i mean i can imagine that i that... was like i would say that's like one of the main bottoms yeah you know that traumatized me on its own mm. in you so know. many ways oh yeah like i can't be at red rocks and not think about it triggers will happen when i see certain ambulances or like hospital rooms etc you know even though like i put myself in that situation it seems like your kryptonite was long these these sweet, kind, loving men who had you know, availability to whatever drugs. Mm -hmm, for sure. Because it was like it, it met the sort of adventuring part of you, but also like the wanting, needing to be nurtured and seen and, yeah. and noticed and cared about. And them giving me the kind of like, wow, you're not going to run away from me because I do this. And I'm like, no, I see this, I see the potential in you or I see the pain in you. And so like, I understand why this is a problem for you and like that kind of thing. So just giving them like way too much of like, cr not credit, but just kind of like to the point of self-abandonment. So that has been like one of the themes that I've noticed over the last several years is I'll do something to the point of self-abandonment. How did these cycles start to break? You know, you were in and out of periods, I think for many years there, where you're using substances and you're in relationships, you know, but maybe every few months, every year, year or two, things would get bad. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of pull out of it for a while, but still like in and out, in and out, in sure. and out, not really finding, uh, you know, healthy relationships, not finding periods of, you know, even kind of relative sobriety. Do you think that's accurate? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. How did you start to break that, you know, those years of that cycle? I don't think I truly broke any of those cycles until I stopped drinking. Mm. And then I went celibate, basically. Mm. And I just, I was like, well, I don't even know if I 
Like, I don't even have a desire to, like, go out and meet someone and engage in sex or, like, any of those things because I'm my entire lifestyle is changing. And so I feel like up until that point, I still kind of had this, like, you know, never letting anyone, like, fall in love with me and never letting them in or never or never being attracted to someone that like I would fall like madly in in love with or vice versa. And so I could easily just kind of like kick them to the curb if I felt like it. Mm -hmm. You were always kind of in the driver's seat. For sure. Absolutely. And when I wasn't, I would like catch myself and then turn it right back around to make sure that I was Mm -hmm. because I'll be damned if like this like piece of shit is going to break my heart. Yeah. That's like that adaptive child in you. That's, you know, very kind of hyper vigilant and protective and mm-hmm. looking like, is this guy, I'm going to be with this guy until it looks like he might hurt me. Yeah, probably. And then, and then I'm, yeah. Yeah. Cause it was really easy for me to be like, Oh, I see that as a sign as abuse or I see that as like a red flag of some sort of emotional something. And so I'm like, absolutely not stay away. Yeah. How did you get to the point of deciding to quit drinking? You know, I think that once I had enough sort of like, disconnect disconnect from myself from mixing psychedelics and alcohol i started just really become i started becoming very aware of how i wanted to show up in the world and i started feeling like a hypocrite because i've always had this like huge part of myself that likes health and wellness and the ability to thrive in all of these ways and so i started being like i cannot be this like binge drinking drug using person and then turn around and, you know, want to help people. It just doesn't feel right. A lot of these people that I've, you know, built this community with, like, aren't that great in the daylight. (laughs) And so, you know, like I would have these amazing conversations with these folks at festivals or on a bender or whatever it was. And like, I would feel X, Y, or Z from these conversations. Like I would feel uplifted. I'd feel more connected. I'd feel whatever, but it was all superficial. All of it was superficial. And I just was like, there is this really strange energy to partying that is no longer serving me. And it's starting to become monotonous, repetitive. My experiences just started feeling like one recycled experience after the other. I wasn't getting the same feeling I would get from like going to shows and things like that. I would just want to get fucked up. I started becoming pretty interested in like wellness coaching. And so I went to this retreat and, you know, I went in with like expecting these to be for a space to be held by these like badass women that were super self-efficient, that were breaking cycles in their families and that they were just like paving a new way for strong women, the women that had been through a lot of shit and they were coaches. And so I was like, okay, like I felt like a new community had been open to me. And so I went to this retreat and it was facilitated in a way that was supposed to be, you know, goddess rising, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) You know, we're really just going to be vulnerable with each other. And we're going to have this container that's going to be so supportive and all of these things. And I was like, okay, like you're saying all the right buzzwords, like I'm fucking in. So they said they were going to maybe have wine with dinner a couple of the nights. And I already told myself that I didn't want to drink that weekend. I had been trying to take breaks and to like really, really, really commit to either taking a a month off or whatever it was, but it was starting to like eat at me in a way. And so I was like, okay, it's really important to me to be present the entire weekend with this group. And so I'm not going to drink 
or at least I'm just going to have like a glass of wine and I'm going to cut it at that. And so I was really proud of myself because these girls were starting to drink like hard kombucha at 2 p.m. And then, you know, by 9 p.m., a couple of them had literally like, you know, wine stained teeth because they were drinking so much wine. And then, you know, we would have these circles where we would connect and these women would just like start crying after absolutely nothing and couldn't hold themselves together and definitely weren't holding a space for anything. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? These are all just actually like broken women that need a lot of therapy that are that are then like trying to like tell other women and other in this coaching manner, you know, how to how to be a millionaire. <laughs> and I'm like, there is something so, so fundamentally wrong with this. And I just watched, you know, like I said, these these women that I looked up to just being wasted and chalking it up to like being it being medicine. And so, you know, at the end of the retreat, I was so disappointed. And the one thing that I was like, wow, like, you know, here I'm thinking I have this alcohol problem, which I do, but like, this was a, this was like, this was it. Like, I cannot be one of those people Mm. and I will not have someone look at me and really feel like they're making a connection and like learning something from me and then later find out that I was wasted. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, it was like, okay. This is it. That's that's that, that, that's it. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks before that, I had a hangover that lasted five days. Ooh. And I that, was like, this called, isn't normal. Yeah, that's called alcohol poisoning. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, what? This isn't like your normal, like, this isn't a hangover. Yeah. I'm so grateful that you're not drinking. I know. It's, me too. It's so utterly transformative. For sure. Yeah. Times like this, I wish that this was a video experience because, listeners, if you could have watched Katie for the last two minutes, <laughs> I have been just smiling so much my face is cracking up because <laughs> Katie is just the most animated, charming person so far. if we might kind of in the final chapter here transition to therapy sure um meanwhile while you know you're in and out of lighter and heavier substance abuse and even addiction and in and out of all these relationships some more toxic some less toxic you've been you've been really good about therapy Mm -hmm. you know again you and i have been connected for a long time you've had a, a bunch of other therapists some of them for long periods of time and I know this is a big question, but I wonder if we might just start with kind of in general, how has psychotherapy helped you to see and change you know, your dysfunctional patterns? Well, I think that therapy, first and foremost, you know, before I learned like what validation was and before validation became like a buzzword, I was validated by therapists left and right. Because, you know, a lot of these, I sort of would just have like, these like mental processes or, you know, conversations in my head. And I wouldn't really be able to like confide in anyone that would know what I was talking about or be able to like help me break it down in a way that I understood what was going on. And so with therapy, it was like, I could say some things and they're like, actually, you're right. And you're also really smart. And you're also really capable. And you're also all of these things that maybe you weren't told ever in your life. Or if you were, you didn't believe them yourself 
because of like your environment or whatever it might be. And therapy was just something I could always trust and rely on. I mean, I'd be like having a thing. I'm like, oh, I have to go to therapy. Like that's a no, that's a no, um, a non-negotiable. And I would have a conversation with my mom or something and I would feel like insane after, or I would feel a certain way after. And then I would go to therapy and be like, this is what happened. And they'd be like, okay, your mom's not supposed to actually, actually your mom's supposed to be your mom, not your best friend, you know, kind of just like map out like these family systems and just help me kind of like shed light on whatever I was going through so that I could be like, oh, okay. So I'm not crazy. And I feel like therapy sometimes, therapists were honestly sometimes the only healthy adults that I was, Mm. that I was around. And so, you know, I really cherished that. I wonder if another dynamic, I'll just speak for myself, but I remember meeting you, vividly remember meeting you. And I think looking back what I had, I had some really powerful parental transference towards you. For sure. You know, I have three daughters. Um, They're younger than you, but I remember meeting you and thinking like, almost that's funny that you're the Matilda adoption thing, thinking like maybe Katie could just like move in my basement. Like we could adopt her. Like, and so I wonder how many of your other therapists, and I bet a lot, especially the ones you connected with, had really strong parental vibes towards you. I thought, For okay, sure. Just could tell like you were this, this lost child that wanted a home and wanted someone to just like mentor them and guide. And, and, and it's, it's one of the most attractive things about you that you're just like curious and motivated and just like, okay, what do I need to do? Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, therapists eat that up. Oh, so like this, the heroin thing, that's what reminds me. So that was such a, a pivotal thing for like me. It was so funny because I remember I called you cause I, I did heroin for like two months and then I just stopped because I like didn't have it anymore. And the dude that I was seeing like went home for Christmas break. And so I remember being like the, I got like, you know, dope sick And I didn't realize what I was experiencing because I didn't think I was doing enough to be like fully addicted. And I wasn't, and you know, I wasn't using it intravenously. And I thought that was like the one way you get like super addicted. And so I remember like, I'm like, well, I think I got to call Hecock about this. And so I remember leaving you a voicemail and I was like, hey, uh, yeah, so I accidentally, you know, just did some heroin for a couple months and I feel like shit. So if you could like help me not feel like shit, that'd be, that'd be really, that'd be really I, I great. I totally remember that voice. <laughs> and you were like, you were probably like, what? And then I remember when I did come, when I came in for a session, you were like, well, you sure know how to like get yourself into something like this. But more importantly, you know how to get yourself out and you know how to ask for help. And I knew what was going on. You know, I like did a deep dive and was like, oh my God, I'm having opiate withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that was huge because I knew that you, A, wouldn't judge me, B, could understand like how I got into that situation and weren't going to be like, well, Katie, you know better than this or whatever it would have been. You're just like, this is what we have to do. This is what the protocol is. And like, are you going to do it again? I'm like, I literally could do, I couldn't think of anything I want, would want to do less mm-hmm. than heroin again. And so, um, which is also miraculous. So once again, I'm like, I don't know how that works. But there's an openness for as sort of like hard headed and stubborn as you can be. There's this openness, as you said, when you were a kid, you were so open to your teachers Mm -hmm. and, and feeling their love and affection for you and wanting to mentor you. And then it seems like that's kind of transferred in your adult life. As you said, therapists have been some of the only healthy adults you've known. And you've been open and willing enough uh, to come in and 
not just be honest, but to hear the hard stuff. Yeah. Like I've always felt like I could tell, I could, in, in general, I think I'm kind of brutally honest with people and yeah. that is my strength and weakness. But for you, I mean, I've known from the beginning, like I can just lay it out with you. There's, yeah. no, there's no sugarcoating. No. And, that, and that's how you want it. And, so, and actually you can run with it. Yeah, absolutely. One time you told me, Cause I was like, well, you know, I, I hit, I like smoke my bong, like right when I first wake up and then like, I go do whatever I do. And you were like, you know, that's like pretty much like drinking a beer. You were like, you're not. And I was like, well, no, it's not. And you're like, you're not getting drunk, but you're still drinking a beer. And you, and I was just like, whatever, you know? And, um, (laughs) but I just, I'll never forget that because it, because you were trying to let me know that like any sort of like any sort of impairment whether you think it's some from your bong or a beer, mm-hmm. you know, is 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 an impairment, and yeah. so you know. And I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, and if you wake up to a substance, you hopefully you're asking yourself like, what? Yeah, yeah, you know, if exactly. You need a cigarette. You need a bong hit. You need a line. Yeah. You need a drink when you wake up. Like, hopefully that's a wake up call. Right. Sadly, it's often not. For sure. Yeah. But I remember just being like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> um, and, but also, but also knowing that like, you weren't just talking out of your ass or mm-hmm. being a, or being like stuck up or whatever it was, you know? And, you know, I feel like with therapy, you know, the number one thing that is still been a theme is, um, how hard I am on myself. And, you know, I feel like I'm finally starting to experience less of that. So, you know, just talking about how therapy has continued to help, I think that that's like one of the main co- contributions that therapy has, has, has made for me. Mm-hmm. What do you think is your biggest challenge now in therapy? Um, I still struggle quite a bit with black and white thinking and sort of like existing in like a macro level and like seeing systematic issues and my part in those. And then also being too like micro or zoomed in. And like looking at myself in like a super hypercritical way and being very judgmental of myself and trying so hard to be perfect, knowing that that's not real. So, you know, because I've, because I found out like how good it feels to be, to be healthy um, and to give a shit about myself, you know, when I don't feel that great or if I find myself, you know, I don't know, like wanting to like, engage in something that isn't healthy. I just have to remember that like, I'm still living life. I'm still a human being and I'm going to struggle no matter what. And I can't like, like, like out perfect it. Like I can't, I still have to like go with the flow of like the ebbs and flows of life Mm -hmm. because I'm like, okay, I know how to feel good and I know how to not have chaos anymore. So when chaos does happen, I have a lot of self-blame. I'm like, I could have done this better. I could have done this differently. I know I've been here before. I know what to do. How could I have let this happen? And just being like, okay, like really remind myself what I'm actually in control of. Just recognizing that I do have a tendency for perfectionism. And that's really where a lot of my my trauma has manifested. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. As we're wrapping up here, I just want to say, um, you know, our work together I think this really epitomizes what I most love about being a psychiatrist is, you know, we've known each other for 13 years, I think. Yeah. And almost 14 years. And I've I've basically watched you grow up Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, you were, um, you were awesome then, but 
more troubled. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's just been such a gift to to know you over all this time and to see how far you've come. And then I can't wait to see where you're going to go. And, uh, you know, I think I thought of inviting you to come on back from the abyss on one of my runs. Surprise, surprise. I do all my thinking when I'm running. And I just thought, hmm, I wonder who we should all... And I thought, oh, Katie. <laughs> I, I asked you, you're like, yes. I said, think about it. Yes. So yeah. I just want to thank you for coming on. And Well, thank you. I appreciate you so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's been super meaningful to work with you. Yay. I'm so happy about that. I accidentally did heroin for a couple of months. I love this quote. It crystallizes the unconscious insanity of a self-destructive repetition compulsion. Yet as Katie's story progressed, we began to hear her healthier parts speaking up, realizing that her drug use and disposable boyfriends were, quote, one recycled experience after another, and that, quote, a lot of these people aren't that great in the daylight. I think perhaps the most shining example of Katie's inner light and resilience was her intermittent but also lifelong search for competent adults, whether her friend's parents, her teachers, or eventually her therapists. This is a shared quality of most kids who survive abuse or neglect and then go on to have healthier lives and break the trauma cycle. They're able to overpower their unconscious masochistic drives and consciously seek out healthy people to mentor them, to guide them, to love them. I felt this when I first met Katie, and I think part of me knew even at that first session that she was going to be okay someday. Her healthy parts were present and slowly gaining momentum. Katie said, quote, therapy was always something I could trust, and I'm so grateful for that. Mm -hmm.